0: Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
1: Hello, I'm Bill Hendricks, Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center, and I want to welcome you to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. In Ephesians 4, uh, Paul talks about four different kinds of gifted people, and their work, the passage says, is to equip the saints for their work of service. And the word saints there means everyday Christians in the everyday world. We want to talk today about what is it that causes those everyday Christians in the everyday world to have a spiritual influence in the places where they live and particularly where they work. And to help us with that, I want to welcome Dr. Bill Peel, a Dallas Seminary graduate, a longtime friend of mine. He is the CEO of 24-7 Faith and has written extensively on having a spiritual influence in the workplace uh, through his work. uh, Workplace Grace is the name of of the most recent work that he has put together on that. Uh, Bill Peel, welcome to the table. Thanks for being with us today.
0: (laughs) Bill, it's great. I wish there was a real table between us now, but, uh, you know, (laughs) praise God for electronic things.
1: Well, that's exactly right. And I just want to point out to folks that uh, Bill and I are longtime friends, and we have— we have been joined together as members of what is commonly known as the faith, work, and economics uh, movement. Uh, and for years, Bill and I have been co-conspirators, if you will, on trying to help people think through how to integrate their faith in their day-to-day work. And this really relates to what we like to call whole-life discipleship. That's why I like this name, 24-7 faith, that our faith is not something we do as a weekend hobby. Uh, but our whole life is to be lived out uh, under Christ's Lordship to His glory and by the power of His Holy Spirit. And I can't really think of too many other people that I'd I'd rather come and talk to us about. You know, when we go particularly into our workplaces or for those who are doing unpaid work, uh, their workplaces in the home or the school uh, or volunteer work, but wherever it is that you live out your day-to-day, uh, you've got other people around you that are not at all Christians. They're not at all believers. They may have very different worldviews. And the New Testament uh, says there in Titus that we're to effectively give off a sort of an aroma and a, and a light that, that shines in the midst of spiritual darkness. Um, Bill, I need to turn this over to you when you think about having a spiritual influence where you work. You know what? What are the key things that we need to quickly start to think about?
0: Well, Bill, it's, it really is a pleasure to to chat with you. Uh, we, we've we've wor- been working together on something for off and on for about twenty five years now. So That's right. It's fun to to connect here, and uh, I have to say, your dad uh, and his best friend in Fort Worth were huge in helping me kind of come to understand this. Uh, we're uh,
1: talking about Bill Garrison.
0: Bill the, Garrison, uh, the late Bill Garrison, me down at the Fort Worth Club one day, not long after I'd graduated, and he said, "Peel, you realize God's heroes don't stand behind pulpits." Don't you? And having having just completed 120 graduate hours of theology, that was quite a shock. (laughs) But what he wanted me to understand, he was the chairman of the board of Dallas Seminary, right? And so he obviously believed in training pastors, and he was, uh, he was trying to get a point across to me that my job when people came to church was not about getting to church, but about sending them out from there Hmm. uh, into the world. That's where their ministry was. And about 10 years later, I took a leap of faith and started discipling people in the workplace. It was really about the same time you and uh, Doug Sherman published Your Work Matters to God. And we've been off and running since then. Uh, In 1987, uh that that was nineteen eighty-seven. Yeah, a few years later, uh when I was working for the Christian Medical Association, I asked uh the fellows that were and g- gals that were part of the part of the the uh that organization to tell me how we could serve them. And what they said was over and over again, teach us to make our practice a ministry. Hmm. And when I probed into that a little bit. I kind of, uh, I understood what they were doing. They came to Christ somewhat like I did uh, through Campus Crusade, and they had a method of evangelism that was somewhat confrontational and uh, that they learned on the college campus. Certainly, I learned it, but it didn't work. When you, very say well.
1: confront- when you say confrontational, I don't think you mean like smacking people in the face, but it was more <laughs> I, I guess I'd say aggressive in the sense yeah, that you, it,
0: you would, it, you, you would talk to strangers yeah. or anybody. And the, you're, the old idea was to get them, you know, to listen, to admit they were a sinner that, you know, Jesus was a, could be their savior and pray to receive Christ right then. Right. And uh, that didn't work very well, you know, in, in the, in in the a medical setting world. Yeah. Uh, and it certainly didn't work well for them to use it. Actually, it's a great, it's a great question. And, has a little more relevance today that uh, Jim Kennedy came up with. Pardon me, if you should die tonight, uh, where would you spend eternity? Mm. Now, that really didn't go well at the bedside. <laughs> but, uh, but I uh, I had done some thinking about this for a while, about what does it look like mm. uh, for people to actually be spiritually influential in their workplace? And so we put together a course called The Saline Solution, where we've really put together all these principles that actually, taught physicians and dentists uh, and healthcare providers how they could actually interact with the patient in a way that actually uh, created some real interest in the in the in the doctor's faith and so that's where all of this kind of came from and it really starts bill the very first thing is not what you say it's what you do mm. and it starts with uh, Doing excellent work. In their case, it was being, you know, a a really good physician or a really good dentist or a really good nurse or whatever healthcare profession they were in. And what in the early 90s, we actually translated all that into the form of the book Workplace Grace, as you were talking about. But what the most important thing that, you know, I would want people to understand is. It doesn't begin with words. It begins with a relationship, and that's especially important today, because people more and more need to see the love of Christ, not just hear about it. Uh, because there are things that we used to assume. When when I was on on the college campus, I suspect this is true for you. Uh, everybody knew they were a sinner. Okay. Uh, they didn't think about all that that much, but every once in a while they did. But we didn't have to argue with people. Uh, today, that dot does not exist anymore. So how in the world do you help a person come to the place where they can even begin to understand what Christ did for them if they have no sense of guilt, no sense of, of mm-hmm. sinfulness in them? So they've got to see that. They've got to see some, something's going to happen in their life where they realize, you know, I can't do this. And they have to look around, and hopefully there's a Christian around them who's been gracious, has been kind, who's serious about their work, and yet has also demonstrated some godly character and real concern about people. And they might actually ask your question. You know, um, how do you do this? How did you? How do you live through this? How do you? How do you get this? And then that opens the door for us to be able to talk about faith with people. Uh, in a way that is intriguing to them.
1: Well, you mentioned two things there that really strike me right off the bat. Uh, So before we go on, I just want to camp on those. You know, one, you mentioned that piece of excellence in our work. I think what you're getting at there is that the excellence gives us credibility. Uh, Let's take the medical professional or the healthcare professional that you were talking about. If you're, you know, if you're botching the procedure, if you're prescribing the wrong medicine, if you're sloppy in in just your your practice, if you will, um, you know that lowers the person's opinion of your professional skills, and therefore whatever you have to say on any other matter, obviously it, it starts to erode the credibility uh, of those other matters. Where whereas if you know your your name is known as if if you want that done, you need to go see this doctor. You know, if 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 you're going to be in that wing of the hospital, the nurse you want is so and so Uh, that that changes things. Then when they speak about other matters, you're like, well, they they were you know, they know what they're doing professionally. Maybe they know what they're doing in this other matter. So the excellence piece is critical. It gives a credibility. But then you also alluded to um, the person has to have a sense that you care. And that's a little more difficult to pull off in these days, because what I'm finding is so many of us get, I I find this myself, I get so wrapped up in my own affairs, my own concerns, my own agenda. Beyond that, there's what I guess I'd call compassion fatigue. You you want me to care? Well, I mean, there's so much to care about. I I don't have that much care in me. You know, here's a need, here's a need, here's a need, here's a needy person, here's a needy person, et cetera. Uh, I start to run out of care by a certain hour of the day. Um, you're, but 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 without that, if if you really don't care, then what motive would you have then to even be aware of what somebody's need is, right?
0: Well, Bill, that's that's really important. So, competence kind of lays the the groundwork. Ephesians six and Colossians four talk about, you know, we're to do our work as unto the Lord, we're to mm. put our whole selves into it. All right. And that lays this foundation. We tell people that still remind people regularly that if they want people, if you want people to pay attention to your faith, the first thing you need to do is pay attention to your work. Mm. And, uh, on top of that, uh, is there's there's something important before you get to the concern, and that is uh godly, godly character mm. and christians are, are 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 ripe to to run first to that, but I think the very first our very first responsibility in sharing Christ with people is the quality of our work mm. that doesn't mean you're the best in tab that means you're putting you're putting yourself into it well you're doing your best you're doing your very best using the gifts that you've got. And then when people are able to observe Christ-likeness in you, they see the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those things, when those two things go together, when competence and character go together, it really produces uh, authority in our words. But so who cares? Well, People care about us that we care about, and when we care about them, that allows them to come to us with situations or needs or uh, make them a little more readily available to us. But that's something we ought to be doing on a regular basis anyway, just watching for people and how they're doing and and, uh, paying attention to them uh, when competence, character, and concern all go together, it really creates a beautiful opportunity for us to talk to talk to them about uh, what particular things are you know are going on in in, in their lives, and uh, that lays this foundation for really wise communication with people about the uh, about the faith. But you know, uh, it, I think this is really hard these days because. How, it, when we were together in an office more, uh, when we spent time with people, it's easier to pick up on the, you know, on, on some kind of felt need that they might particularly have and w- that we might be able to encourage them with. And so we've got to, in some ways, go out of our way to find out what those what those things are and pay attention to them these days.
1: You, you're talking about this new way of working that we have, which is largely remote and, and yeah. we don't often have as much touch with people as we normally did. And because, uh, work has gotten so transactional is, is we cut right to the, you know, get the work done and we don't slow down to pay attention to the person.
0: Yeah. You know, there's, there's all kinds of work besides paid work. You know, there's the work of running a family. There's the work of being a good neighbor too. And Mm. all this stuff applies, you know, I mean, what does it look like, you know, to, to to live like this in your home, what does it look like to live like this, you know, in your neighborhood where people do see you potentially a little bit more than ever before? Well, so.
1: I I mentioned Ephesians four back at the beginning of our conversation, yeah. and uh, and you you mentioned Bill Garrison. Uh, there's another character in 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 the the Mount Rushmore that that you and I know of in the Faith and Work movement a guy named Ray Stedman. Ray Stedman was also a great friend of my dad's, and of course he knew Bill Garrison. He was the founder of Peninsula Bible Church out in Palo Alto, California. Wrote a very influential book back in, gosh, the late 60s, early 70s called Body Life. And I have a recording of Ray Stedman, and I, I think it was at the same conference where Bill Garrison also spoke back in 1984 at Dallas Seminary because it was a conference on what at the time was called the layman or the lay person, yeah. which is really just a modern-day version of that word that I used out of Ephesians 4, the saints, the everyday Christians in the everyday world. And Ray Stedman is making the point in there. He, w- he was talking about the role of pastor, okay? Uh, and he was saying, you know, we typically think of pastors as the paid professionals at the church, right? and we use that term in that way. But he said actually the the gift of pastor is far more widely distributed in the body of Christ than we possibly realize. He said because God's got the saints that is everyday Christians in the everyday world distributed everywhere in workplaces, in schools, in communities, in neighborhoods, in homes on and on. All these different places you've got you've got followers of Christ living out their lives and interacting with all these people who don't yet have a relationship with Christ. And really, uh, my colleague, Dr. Bach, the uh, Director for Cultural Engagement, points out, Ephesians 4 really gives us God's strategy for evangelism. You know, we, in churches, we, we sit around and try to dream up, you know, plans and schemes and strategies for evangelism and me all the while god said well actually i already have one and it's that christians everyday christians would be out in the world <laughs> and they'd be living a certain way and working a certain way and treating people a certain way and race yeah, point was all around us are people who have pastoral needs spiritual needs <laughs> would be another way to put it just like you mentioned and you show up to work and, and here's a coworker and, you know, they, they, they something's not right with them that day. And you're just like, you know, Charlie, what's wrong? Oh, man, my wife and I, we had a biggest fight last night and I just, I don't know what's going to happen for us. Well, there's a pastoral need over here. Somebody like, you know, well, how's it going today? Oh, man, I'm just I'm just beside myself. Well, how come? Well, I found out last night my mom's got cancer. I just I don't, I don't know what to say to her. I don't know, I don't know how to help her. There's a pastoral need. You know, all around us are these spiritual needs, and every single one of them is, a, is an entry gateway, if you will, a doorway into a person, into a life. And of course, when we as Christ followers are willing to go through that door, we bring Christ with us. And that's, and that's the key. And I, I think that's what you're talking about.
0: Well, yeah, this is the don't tell them, show them people see Christ in us, maybe they'll be attracted to Him. I mean, this this is the Holy Spirit's work. Mm. And I guess one of the great, you know, reliefs that most people have is to realize, okay, I don't have to make this happen. This is the Holy Spirit's job. My job is just to be to have my ear to the ground to some extent and watch for what the Holy Spirit is already doing in, in another person's life and join him at that particular point. And one of the most important things for, I think all of us to realize that evangelism is a process. Mm. Sometimes it's a really long process. I've got a gal who cuts my hair that I've been praying for and talking to for 20 years. Mm. And, um, It's amazing. We have talked about all kinds of things. I've even actually talked about Christ and what specifically the specifics of the gospel in certain occasions. And she's just has never been interested, has never been interested. And so I can't do anything about that. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He's got to be at work there. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws it. And uh, he tells us that that's the Holy Spirit's work. So we watch for what Christ is doing. We pray diligently for them to realize their need of Christ and then pay attention to what's going on. Um, So the idea of evangelism, a lot of people think of it as, boom, once the door is open, you know, you're going to go all the way to, you know, are you ready to try to receive Christ right now? And if evangelism is a process, they're they're like stages in some ways. And uh, actually, uh, all throughout the Gospels and the New Testament, uh, Jesus and Paul, for example, talk about evangelism as an organic process. Hmm. So what does it take to grow a crop? Uh, It takes a farmer going out and tilling soil, uh, and hoeing up hard ground. How in the world does how in the world does hard-packed soil become fertile soil? Mm-hmm. Go from a place where the gospel has no penetration to uh, you know being very fruitful. Well, that, it's, there's a farmer out there with his hoe or tractor or something tilling up that hard ground, and uh, obviously that's a big part of the Holy Spirit's work as well. But you, you pay attention to where this person is uh, cultivation is where we use, uh, you know, who we are and our caring for people and letting them see Christ in us. Uh, At some point when the door gets open a little bit, uh, we can start planting. uh, But you don't want to throw seed on hard ground. I mean, that just feeds the birds (laughs) and brings Satan running. And so that, you know, he's got to break up that hard soil. And he does that very skillfully. Uh, Just not on our schedule, a lot of times. Uh, Then we can start talking about Jesus when when we sense that open door there. I mean, you make
1: such a great point about the hard soil. I I I think that we forget so often when we encounter people who don't know Jesus, um, and they look like they don't know Jesus. They're surly. They're negative. They may be toxic. Uh it's not like they're bad people, they're lost people, but oftentimes they bear the wounds and the scars of a lifetime of mistreatment, you know, from parents, from siblings, from ex-spouses, from, you know, all kinds of directions. And and they are lost, just like Ephesians 2 says, you know, they're they're walking around, but they're dead inside. Okay dead in their trespasses and sins. And no, they're not particularly attractive, if you will, um, oftentimes. But what you're suggesting is even that cup of cold water that we offer them, that may be the first cup of cold water anybody's ever offered them. You know, this really came home to me a couple of years ago when, uh, as you know, I grew up in a seminary professor's home, which means I've been around the gospel and the church since nine months before I was born, okay? I came to faith at four and a half and, you know, I've never run away from the faith. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there.
0: You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like,
1: If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican.
0: Huh, that raises
1: an interesting question. And I grew up hearing about, oh, you know, you need to live a life that's a certain way so that people will be attracted. And I thought, oh, well, you're just saying be a nice person. And to me, I thought, what good is that going to do? Everybody's a nice person, particularly here in Texas where I grew up. Everybody's polite, courteous, you know, treat you decent. Um, What good is being nice going to do? Well, that's shifted. That's shifted dramatically. And I discovered that a couple of years ago when – I, I came down with a sore throat. I already knew the drill of what was going to happen. I, I, I just, I checked into the, you know, the kiosk at the, uh, uh, pharmacy to see the doc in a box. I knew she was going to say, okay, here's a prescription for this, go right to the next desk, pick it up. I'm done. No muss, no fuss. So sure enough, I wait. Finally, the physician's assistant sees me. She's probably 35 years old. Um, I could tell that she was not a native born American, you know, she had immigrated from some other culture, um, but seemed very professional. And sure enough, she takes all my vitals, uh, cultures me, does it all. and says, yep. Uh, I think I'm going to prescribe this, you know, penicillin or whatever for you. And, uh, so she, she does the drill. She's typing in my information on in the computer and she asked me, so is there anything else I could do for you today? i said no you've been very helpful thank you very much she stopped she put her hands down she turned to me and she said wow that's the first time i've heard that today and i said what do you mean she said oh nobody ever thanks me and my heart just sank she said you know most of the people by the time they get to see me They've been waiting a while and they're and they're and they're feeling bad to begin with. So they're usually in a bad mood because they had to wait. And sometimes they get downright abusive to me and I have to push back. And I just thought to myself, okay, Bill, just being, quote, nice in and of itself is a bit of light in this dark world that we now live in. You know, and 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 I didn't get to, you know, she was busy. I need to get on, uh, you know, and so we didn't get into any sort of, quote, spiritual things. But I thought, well, at least just my treatment of her was somewhat, I'm hoping, would, would be how Jesus would have treated her, you know, that cup of cold water on a on a really parched day for her. Who knows well, how the yeah, Holy Spirit might use that?
0: Who, yeah, who knows uh, what the Holy Spirit can do with that? Is that what... Are, you know, she starts thinking about you know, wonder what, what was different about that person, right? And uh, she may not connect all the dots there, but you know, that's again, that's the the Holy Spirit's job. Uh, Bill, every interaction with every person we have is spiritually significant, no matter mm-hmm. where the where, where the conversation leads. Kathy and I every morning pray together, and we say, "Lord, help us to be a blessing to everyone we come in contact with." It I've had to do this um, prescriptively
1: Yeah, <laughs>
0: because I'm that person that gets real irritated <laughs> when I have to wait in line. And I'll say this just to make the point here. I, By way of confession, I had just actually spoken to the Christian Medical Association group up in Bristol, Tennessee, and Kathy and I were flying out at, it seems like every other flight out of Bristol to back to Atlanta, then to Dallas, is delayed. And uh, sure enough, we get up there, and we don't know whether we're going to be able to get out that night. And uh, I, I I really gave this poor gate attendant, or the, the ticket, the gala ticket desk there, what for? <laughs> and as we're walking away, my sweet uh, female Holy Spirit, next to me says, well, you think she'd be interested in hearing about Jesus from you today? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I-, I hope that was the last time I was mean to somebody like that, uh, because <laughs> the fact is people are watching, and who knows what God can do with that. That certainly wasn't a help, no. you know, to-, to that lady, for sure. And uh, anyway, so every, every interaction— with every person, especially people in these that are in some kind of service industry, Mm. uh, but just stopping and thanking them or pointing out to them. You've, you've, you've done a really great job. Thanks for, thanks for serving us so well. You, you're really gifted at paying attention to the people at your tables here. And I just want to, Commend you for that. Uh, you God's given you a real gift.
1: I know that you and I, in addition to all the faith work and economic stuff we've worked on, a key part of that has also been this shared interest in the whole phenomenon of giftedness that we we yeah. both, you know, worked on. And I just want to affirm that that most people have never had anybody remark about or comment on in a positive way their their particular giftedness. And and when it, this isn't flattery. We're not telling them they're doing something well when they're not. This is when you can tell the person is putting their heart into the work because they're gifted to the task. They do it well. They're gaining energy from it. You know, it's almost like you're doing them a favor by letting them do whatever their their service is for you. When they they sort of distinguish themselves from people who are just doing it for a paycheck, and to point that out to somebody to say, just like you said. Wow, do you know you're really gifted to that thank you for for your work. They've never had anybody do that before, and that in and of itself may open a door of some sort
0: well I tell you what it it, it does a lot actually. I have friends that have this kind of technique they'll they'll go uh, at a restaurant. <laughs> used to be in a restaurant, yeah <laughs> and, and the waiter waitress will come up and take our order and says we're going to it brings our order and says we're going to pray would you like to join us you know I always feel slightly uncomfortable about that although we it's been really interesting how some people have responded, but the fact is that they're there to do a job and and i don't that's important for me to respect that yeah but I tell you when would we do something like like commend somebody, that doesn't take time from them. Uh, and if they want to continue the conversation and stop what they're doing for a little while and talk to us, I think that's 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 a that's a real open door. Uh that's what that's what uh Walt Larimore, who was my co-author in Workplace Grace, called raising a faith flag. Hmm. You know, just to say something, like, you know, God's really gifted you hmm. at that. And you just drop it at that point. And a faith flag is like kind of running up a flag that you're somebody that pays attention to God, that you have a spiritual side, whatever. And uh, those are very easy things to do. Uh, faith flags are just short 20 second comments that identify you as a person of faith, that you pay attention to God, pay attention to prayer, whatever. Uh, and, uh, it it lets them know that there's something there that they can pursue when they want to at their pace, when the Holy Spirit nudges them along. And I, I, I can't tell you how many, we've had doctors that we taught, you know, 25 years ago, you know, say, yeah, I was at a saline solution conference, you know, back in the nineties mm. and, uh, Faith flags faith flags I still I do those.
1: faith flags
0: and it's such an easy non threatening uh thing to do that we it allows us to you know get into the conversation potentially and let people know that this we have something of of spiritual depth that they might be interested in at some point, so
1: but you mentioned the whole idea of offering to pray for somebody who's in a, in a bad way, a need. I will tell you, uh, in my own experience with that, I've never had anybody say no to me. Usually when people are in a fix, they'll take, they'll take any help from any direction. They may not even believe in God, but they're like, what harm can it, can it do? And I, I have a friend who's an actor, uh, and, and, you know, it didn't turn out for him to go to Hollywood, but he, he works a lot of community productions and he apparently, you know, a, a troop of actors after the performance will get together backstage and kind of celebrate the performance. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's like a football team, you know, getting together after victory and everybody's like, "Hey, that was a great hit, man. You know? Well, this, they do that as actors at any rate. Um, one night he was, they were all cheering and he was feeling his oats and he's like, man, can I just stop and pray? This was great. And everybody, of course, knows that he's he's the token Christian in this troop, right? And nobody objected. They were like, that's a great idea. And so he just says a simple prayer. Thank us, thank God for helping us tonight. Everybody did a great job. Well, the next week, um, they all get back together. And somebody says, yeah, and Tom, say that prayer again. And yeah, that was great. And it became part of the ritual. And then one night. I think he had to leave early to go get his wife at the airport. He said, guys, I got to leave early. I can't be apart. And somebody said, Oh, you can't leave yet. You haven't said the prayer. And he wrote, he wrote us an email later. And he said, I realized in that moment, one of the reasons God gave me that gift of of acting, I thought it was going to be to be on, you know, big stages and stuff. But I realized I was able to be, the only connection most of these people have to God, and and he just realized that that gave him an entree with these people. They they they've started to give prayer requests when he prays. Hey, would you pray for my daughter? She's sick. You know. Hey, I I'm looking for this job. I have a final interview tomorrow. Could you pray over that? And he's like, if we could use the word, he's like the priest for them.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And and what a what a faith flag that is.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, that's that just points out the reason why the workplace is so important, because likely some of those people would have never darkened the door of a church. Absolutely. And so this is this is this is is operating patterns, God's operating pattern. He doesn't he doesn't wait for us to come to him. He he to him. He goes after us. Uh, in John 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, talking about worship. And he, he says, for such worship, those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. And uh, for such worshipers, God is seeking. God's, God's a seeking God. He's out to find us. He came to the Garden of Eden hmm. seeking Adam. We knew where he was, but... Uh, he comes after us. Jesus came after us, uh, which is what Christmas is really all about. And uh, we, we go out. That's our, that's our job. And that's how, by the way, that's the, the place where most non-Christians have the most contact with Christians, with the people that know the gospel, is the workplace. And that's what makes it so important. And, Bill, that's a historically true hmm. um, In the early church, the early church grew from a few hundred people the day of Pentecost in AD 33 to, you know, millions by the end of the third century. Uh, And so the way that the gospel spread was ordinary people. You know, Peter, yeah, Peter was a good preacher. Some of the others, Paul. But the way that the gospel spread throughout the whole world, by the way, not just Europe, but it went east as well into India and Syria, and and south into Africa and further east, even into China, uh, before it ever became a, a a European religion, of actually people going out and it was ordinary people who were merchants uh, and one guy says gossiping the gospel. To the people that worked around them,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, and, and so, what's really interesting is this doesn't get translated right a lot of times. Uh, but for those those of you guys who are listening to this, who uh, know Greek, go look up and see how the word. Look at the Greek word for house, or sometimes it's even family. It's the word oikos, and so you've got the the. You know, the, in Acts 2, they're meaning from house to house or oikos to oikos. And actually, the oikos was more than just a house, and it's more than just a nuclear family. It was a whole set of people who lived and worked together. The oikos was the basic economic unit of the Greco Roman world. Hmm. And it was on that comm- or on the back of commerce, that the gospel spread. Paul set up, you know, set up a school in, in Ephesus, trained people, but the whole of Asia heard the gospel. Why? Because business people who were traveling back and forth to Ephesus and then back to their hometown somehow came in contact with the gospel and took it back. That's how Colossae, for example, heard about the gospel and why there was a church there, for example. Uh, but that happened all over the all over the world. The ordinary people who were not Apostles, not gifted evangelists, just ordinary folks uh, taking the gospel back to their oikos or their workplace uh, and, and sharing it with the people around them. What
1: well, sounds like the Holy Spirit was preceding them because the people were receptive and they said, we want to hear more, and ultimately they came to faith
0: actually, that's that's exactly right. Now, you know, one of the things that uh, I get asked regularly is, you know, so wait a minute, that sounds like I've got to be this perfect person in the workplace. Right. Uh, that's definitely not true, obviously, because not, none of us qualify for that, for sure. Um, in fact, I, you know, I suspect there's well, I won't say that never mind. but but the, the, the our uh, fallen tendencies can show up all, in almost any place. Um, but the deal is that if that's the case if you've you know if you've hurt people, if you've done things that if not you've not responded right to people that you work with, hey, boy you know you've got a incredible opportunity to go back to them and say, "Hey, you know what?" I was really wrong. Would you forgive me for wh- what I said or what I did uh, in some way? And I got to tell you that that goes miles, you know, down the road to helping a person see that oh, you know, this person is—they're more like I am than they <laughs> than they put on here. Well, you're uh, you're, you're demonstrating. They have a need for Christ like I do.
1: Yes. And you're demonstrating grace at that point exactly. you're saying, you know what, I'm a really imperfect person and I need to apologize to you. I, I wronged you and I want to ask your forgiveness. Well, right there, I mean, the, you know, now we're in the categories of, of confession and forgiveness and they realize, well, if this person could do it, you know, I mean, they know you're not perfect. Um, but it, it it demonstrates that the gospel at its core is about grace Gospel at its core is about grace, and I'm perceiving in our culture on an increasing basis that our culture doesn't know anything about grace. It knows a lot about judgment and condemnation, and an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, if not more. But the idea of grace, of forgiveness for sin and and wrongdoing, that's a that that too is becoming a new category. So when a Christian humbles themselves to say you know what, I failed you, and I'm sorry, and I want to make it right, that in itself becomes a whole new testimony.
0: Well, That's really true, and I I can't think of a more important time for us to be gracious Mm. than right now because there is a lot of bitterness, uh, a lot of uh, moralizing going on right now, and uh, let's let's just remember that there's a there's a kingdom that's more important than the one we physically reside in right now, and we're we're already members there. Yeah. And you know, it's Bill. It, it just reminds me. I'm reading Andrew Murray's uh, book, "Abide in Christ," again right now. And when we abide in Christ, Christ' character exudes from us. That's a beautiful thing. He, you cannot turn away from the beauty of, of who Christ is. Yeah. Um, we talk about irresistible grace. Jesus, Jesus's character is irresistible, and when people see that in us, they do pay attention to it. So that's the that's a great thing. That's a great thing right now, uh, and a great opportunity to to show love and grace toward people that we disagree with.
1: Absolutely. You know, you've probably heard the illustration my dad gave is similar to your story about Bristol. You know, he, he had a deal where he was supposed to catch a flight and it was oversold or whatever they canceled. And he was mad and frustrated and tired. And he let the gate agent have it. And, you know, and and then walked off in a huff and, and then just like Kathy sort of confronted you, You know, the Holy Spirit in some way confronted him and said, you got to go back and apologize to that lady. And, you know, he he goes back up to the counter, waits his way up and he gets up there and he says, ma'am, I need to tell you something. I need to apologize for the way I just treated you. Uh, The truth of the matter is I'm a Christian and I shouldn't have done that. And the lady leaned forward and looked one way and looked another and said, you know what, I'm a Christian, too. How else do you think I could handle this job? <laughs> so, oh, gosh, even even uh, even the best, you know, are are, are going to have those moments where they're not exuding Christ likeness. Um,
0: yeah. So even when you screw up, that's an opportunity. <laughs> well, you know, I witness
1: I, absolutely, and I I I think that uh, everyday people. Uh, in some ways, expect us to be more human than many times we as Christians expect ourselves to be human. Yeah. Um, you know, we're we're not we're not perfect people. We're saved people that are slowly but surely being conformed to the the uh, the image of Christ.
0: Yeah. Hey, Bill. Uh, it might be helpful, by the way. Let me let me say this. I really appreciate your work at the center and at well, thank DTS. You. And uh, what you and Daryl are doing there, but also appreciate your work on the theology of work project. Thank you. And uh, thank, thankfully, you'll just approved a, an article that I worked on really hard on evangelism in the workplace. It would be great if you guys could put a link to that. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot we'll more we sure can talk about, and there's a lot more there that people could take a look and really study and think about uh, about the influence that they're having, you know, to the, to the people around them and that they live with, even in our own families. And stuff. Well, thank
1: you for mentioning that for our listeners. Theology of Work Project uh, is a project that uh, we went through all 66 books of the Bible and asked the question, what does this book contribute to our understanding of work? And you can find out our uh, findings on that at theologyofwork.org. And there's a whole... Uh, bunch of other topical articles, including articles on living out our spirituality in the workplace. And, and Bill Peel is one of the contributors to that. Bill, our time is gone today, but I, I really want to thank you for being with us and, you know, sharing your wisdom on, on this topic. And uh, I want to thank all of our listeners for being a part of today's Table Podcast, where we uh, consider issues of God and culture.